Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. I'll read the chapter, which is 13 verses. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit uh, would minister it to our minds, to our hearts, and to our wills, such that we would be motivated to serve you more completely in the days ahead. We ask you now, Lord, to be with us and guide us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many universities teach classes on the Bible, and these classes are regarding the Bible as literature, and often they're entitled that, the Bible as literature. I've always been suspicious of such classes. And when I hear the words or the phrase, the Bible as literature, I insert a word, the Bible as mere literature, or perhaps worse, the Bible merely as literature. And yet, when you read 1 Corinthians 13 and you see how prevalent it is in our world, it does make you realize that the Bible is literature. And to regard the Bible as literature is not to diminish its significance in our lives as the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And so I looked up online one such class, and it's entitled, What Makes the Bible Literature? And I want to read to you the intro to it. It's the intro to Lesson 1. This lesson explores what it means to say that the Bible is literature and provides an introduction to literary approaches to the Bible. The good book, 
Adam and Eve, the Ten Commandments, the birth of Jesus. Even if you've never read the Bible, you know it. Its stories and psalms, phrases and proverbs have seeped into our everyday lives. It is the book that has permeated Western culture more than any other. It is, in common parlance, the good book. Of course, the Bible is a religious text, but it is also a work of literature. In fact, it's a literary masterpiece. The Bible cannot be beat for sheer diversity of form and content, for artistry, for effective power, and for the way in which it keeps springing surprises on us. It is not simply a good book. It is the best. This book is dynamite. In this class, we'll look at ways to read the Bible for its literary qualities, its narrative genres, its stylistic forms, its poetry and prose. You need not have a particular religious orientation to take a literary approach to the Bible. You can pick it up as you would a novel and delve into its world, get to know its characters, and follow its rich and wonderful stories. Even if you feel you already know the Bible, this course will give you an opportunity to engage it on another level. We will look at the Bible through new eyes. I like what this person has to say about the Bible as literature. I think it's true, and it has perhaps uh, caused me to not, not look so harshly at universities that teach the Bible as literature. Now, we know that how it is regarded in that class is entirely based upon the person that's teaching the class. And so Christians, if they are put into a position of teaching it, will obviously teach with respect, and those that are not Christians may not teach with respect. Yet, the reason I went searching for that was when I was preparing for this message to preach on 1 Corinthians 13, I thought, this is so famous, this is such a, a popular portion of Scripture that I really wanted to do it justice. So when we actually had to cancel service three weeks ago, I was thankful because I did not feel prepared. I am more prepared, but I must say that I don't know that I would ever be entirely prepared to preach this sermon. So this is a wonderful example of biblical literature. It is beautiful. And so it's really difficult to preach on something so beautiful as 1 Corinthians 13. What is interesting about this, though, just, just as is often the case, always the case with the Bible, is that beauty is not all that it's intended to convey. 1 Corinthians 13 does not stand alone. Yes, we pull it out and we make it stand alone, and it obviously can stand alone, What's funny, though, is that it is right in the middle of a long lecture Paul is giving on unity and disunity relative to the gifts that God has given the church. And it's not out of place. When you come upon it, you might think it's out of place. It just seems so odd, so beautiful, so elevated above what it is that he is talking about. But that, I believe, is entirely the point. That's Paul's point, and we ought to understand that. These Corinthians, these Corinthians were so worldly, so worldly, and yet they benefited from the gifts that God had poured out upon the church during that time from the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to the 
after the death of all the apostles, the martyrdom of all of them, during that crazy period in which God is laying the foundation for his church, there were so many miracles occurring. It was just such a wonderful time for these Christians. There was nothing to indicate to them at that time, probably, that this was not going to remain the norm for centuries. Yet it really wasn't the norm for centuries. It was the norm for only that brief period of time. And I think of these Corinthians as having all of these gifts poured out of them, as kind of like toddlers running around with revolvers. I mean, they're just wreaking havoc on one another with these tremendous gifts of God that they were far from worthy to wield. But that was God's plan. That's how he did it. And it's just amazing. The problems that Paul addresses, all of the many problems that the Corinthians had, and yet here he is trying to reach out to them. It really gives, it is a rebuke to us nowadays, we elders that lose hope in counseling people too early, because these people were messed up, thoroughly messed up, and yet Paul was pouring out his best to them. I doubt many of them could even understand what he was saying, but yet it didn't prevent him from pouring out all of his energies into these people that couldn't appreciate it. Now, before we get to 1 Corinthians 13 proper, though, I want to read to you a few verses from 12, which is kind of like the intro to this. And let me read to you from verses 27 to 31. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually, and God has appointed these in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles and gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healings, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So now he recaps all these gifts that were creating disunity in the Corinthian church because they were just arguing about them endlessly. And they were using them kind of to beat up on one another. And they were bragging about the gifts they had versus their friends. And yet he says, I will show you a more excellent way. Now we have this interlude in his very logical, very cogent argument for unity in the body for these Corinthians. To, and he doesn't dismiss the gifts. He's saying these gifts are wonderful. But yet, let's set them aside for a brief time. So now we come into this 13-verse beautiful poem of love, and it is dense. It is packed with information, and it's really hard to do it justice in one sermon. And yet, in the first three verses, he covers six things that love is greater than. And he had brought those up in the previous chapter, even in the previous few verses I just read in leading into chapter 12. But there are six things in the first three, three verses that love is greater than. And then in the next four verses, he covers 15 things, seven things that love is, and eight things that love is not. And so he begins by saying love is greater than all of these, and then he describes love in both positive and negative terms. He does that all in seven verses. And then he comes to the eighth verse, which is the title of our sermon, those three words. Love never fails. 
Chapters 12, 13, and 14 consist of about 1,700 words. This is his logical argument pleading for unity amongst these Corinthians concerning gifts. And I believe the heart of his entire argument rests in these three words, love never fails. Then he closes with, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. That's often what you see in a Bible that has the non-inspired headers. That's often what you'll see as the header for all of chapter 13. It's probably what you have in your Bibles if you have a reference Bible. The greatest of these is love, the greatest gift. And that's true. It's beautiful. Yet I believe what is absent from that one phrase, that it's great, is that it is the greatest. It never fails. It never will fail, never has failed. So now... Let's go on and discuss this more excellent way that Paul introduced in that last verse of chapter 12. What is love greater than? Love is greater than, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. So he begins with the, probably the gift that was of most source of dispute in the Corinthian church, and that was tongues. And so he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. So this is what they were fighting about. Now, what was tongues? Tongues was this miraculous ability to communicate instantly with other peoples, other cultures, people that speak other languages. And Paul says later that he has the most ability in that regard. God has blessed him with many tongues. So Paul obviously was plentifully blessed by the Holy Spirit in his miraculous ability to go into cultures and speak their language without ever having been trained or taught that language. And really, the ability to speak a language to a people or a person is what? It's the ability to connect with them. When you can't speak the language, you're lost, and you really can't connect. It's very difficult to connect apart from words. So Paul could connect with all these people, and yet, without love, it is the empty sound of a clanging cymbal. So in other words, even if I know your language, if I come to you and I attempt to convince you of something, but you don't perceive that I care for you, that I love you, you don't pay attention to me. You don't value my words because I'm not demonstrating that I care about you. I don't care if everything I'm saying is absolutely true. You don't care to hear it because you don't like me. It's obvious that I don't care for you. I don't love you. I don't like you. Why should you listen to me? Then we go to verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Paul covers three things in this one verse, and so it's jam-packed. So, though I have the gift of prophecy, I am nothing. So what is a prophet? A prophet is God's spokesman on the earth. That prophet speaks for God because God chooses not to speak for himself, at least verbally, on this earth. Since the garden, He has not been speaking individually with many of us people. He speaks through other people. And so to be a prophet is to be ennobled. 
to speak for God. And so that is a great honor. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you love God or God loves you. Balaam spoke for God. The Jews later killed him in battle. Balaam's donkey spoke for God. That didn't ennoble that donkey, did it? Jesus said when he was ushered into the city and the people cried out, Hosanna, he was rebuked by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They said, how dare these people do this? And Jesus said, what? If they hold their peace, the rocks will cry out. So see, even rocks can speak for God if God wills it to be so. So being a prophet, speaking for God is of great value, but again, only if that prophet loves the people to whom he is speaking. And though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I am nothing. Knowledge is power. That is the phrase in our culture. And frankly, it's not only a phrase that has meaning in our culture. Knowledge as power has meaning in every culture and always has. I read several books by the author Don Richardson. He wrote the books Peace Child, Eternity in Their Hearts, Lords of the Earth, and it's about experiences, his own and others, uh, with the people of Irian Jaya. And the people of Irian Jaya were headhunters. If you've not read these books, they can be very disturbing as to just how brutal these people treated one another. And that's not just between tribes. That's within the tribe itself. Why is it that these people had such brutal practices? They all emanated from the witch doctor. The witch doctor ruled. And if the witch doctor wanted to get even or take vengeance upon anybody, all he had to say was, from now on, this is the law. And everybody felt he was the one that was in interacting with God personally, and so they just did it. They adopted it immediately. The witch doctor had ultimate power in those societies. And brutality really is prevalent pervasive in those societies. That's knowledge. It was secret knowledge. It was made-up knowledge, but yet it was powerful, powerful control over those people. Now, we think that those people were deceived to elevate knowledge to such a high degree, but we live in the midst of a people that have elevated knowledge to that same degree. We live in a time when salvation comes through knowledge. That's what is preached in our secular culture, isn't it? If we only spend more money on schools next year, then everything will be wonderful. It doesn't matter that for the last 30 years, test scores have been dropping while costs have been climbing. It doesn't matter because we all know that it has to do with spending more money to pound information into people's heads. Now, I criticize knowledge, but we all know we love knowledge. We're Presbyterians. We love knowledge. Phil has said that any, I mean, I love this quote. Phil has said that any 
any uh, theology is a defective theology that, that, that does not pound knowledge into people's heads. So see, we value knowledge because God values knowledge. But again, apart from love, it's meaningless. And then the last one in verse 2 is that love is greater than faith, or that uh, I have all faith, though I have the gift of all faith, so that I can remove mountains, but have not love. I am nothing. Now, I want you to notice that all of these are tied together, and they're all saying, I am nothing. I am nothing. And what are the three? Prophet, teacher, and the, the faith, the person with the most faith. All of these are positions that would normally garner you a lot of respect in culture. To be a prophet, to be the most knowledgeable, to have the most faith, renders you a leader in most any society. Yet without love, you are nothing. All that you would have or should have or could have been as a leader is made empty and void apart from love. In verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And so we begin with generosity. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, it profits me nothing. Now, it is popular in our circles and in this time to point out that love is action, right? Love is more than a sentiment. Love is more than a feeling. Love is action. This is action. But it's not love. So see, action and love are not equivalent. You can do all kinds of things that are good outwardly. But if it doesn't emerge from a heart of love, it's meaningless to God. So see, our actions do speak of love if they're fueled by love. So don't just think that outward actions, I, I'll, I'll hear it, you'll see it uh, quoted often, um, Mother Teresa, about the good works, the many good works she did in India. But when you look into Mother Teresa's theology and her beliefs about God, there are reasons for concern there. She lacked what would appear to me to be saving faith in God. She loved people, I guess. She wanted to serve them. She wanted to minister to needs. But it didn't appear to emanate from my studies from a heart that truly loved the Lord. So everybody expects to get out of the way in heaven for Mother Teresa. But I don't know that that's the case because I don't see that biblically she loved as we are to love. Love is greater than self-sacrifice, and that is that last part. And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. I looked this up, giving our bodies to be burned. Uh, Self-immolation has become rather popular in the last 50 years. It began in the 60s with Tibetan Buddhist monks uh, setting themselves on fire in honor of the Dalai Lama that was then imprisoned by the Chinese and forbidden to act as the head of the Tibetan Buddhist church. But we must not think that it's only them. Uh, nearly all religions have done this, even Christianity. 
Uh, just last June in Texas, a Methodist minister burned himself to death. What was he so upset about? Advocating marriage rights for lesbian and gays. That's why this 80-year-old Methodist minister sat down in a parking lot in Texas and set himself on fire. So see, warped Christians, I agree, but Christians nonetheless, and uh, we also have our share of oddities in the Christian church. The Roman bishops back during the Middle Ages uh, largely supported the Crusades by telling the knights that if they were to die in battle, they do not have to go to purgatory. Do not go to jail. Go right to go and get your 200 bucks. So see, that was practiced in the Catholic Church for a while. Now, I realize we're not Catholic and we don't condone that stuff, but yet people could easily point to the other religions and say, yes, but maybe that's an error, that's an error. But so we have our share of skeletons in the closet as well. So this self-sacrifice, though, has always been the fast track to God, the fast track to acceptance by God, that if you were willing to pay the ultimate price and sacrifice yourself, God has to take you. So now, we've gone through all six of these. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, generosity, self-sacrifice. And see, the self-sacrifice, it says it profits them nothing. So in other words, the last two, the generosity and the self-sacrifice, it, it isn't that you're rendered um, uh, unworthy of praise as you did with prophets, knowledge, and faith. There you are nothing. But here it's profits you nothing. In other words, you think through your generosity, you think through your self-sacrifice, you're earning something. You're getting something back. You're being paid back. Paul knew exactly what he was talking about. God knew exactly what he was building this argument for, for us in our time, for humans throughout all time. So now Paul goes on to define love. And so the next four verses cover quite a bit of turf, and I'll try to move through it fairly quickly. And uh, first we begin with two things that love is. And let me go ahead and read this again starting at verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So what you see here is that we begin with two things that love is, and then we go on to eight things that love is not, and then we close that five things with love is. It's kind of this uh, yes, yes, eight no's, five yeses. So let's sweep through them. First, love does not envy. Love embodies contentment. And so contentment means that you don't, do not long for what others have. And if you are discontent such that you become envious, if you can't have it, you don't want them to have it either. Has anybody here read the book, A Separate Piece? A Separate Piece? It was required reading pretty much for most Bachelor of Arts degrees. And so about 10 or 20 years ago, I read it because I thought, well, you know, I want to be smart like these Bachelor of Arts people. And so uh, it was required reading from the 60s on. I think it was written in the 60s. It became immediately popular. But uh, this book is all about this one little incident in this uh, college student's life. 
he was in this little crowd with this very popular college, fellow college student, and it seemed like he could do no wrong. That guy was always uh, wonderful. And they're up on a tree, they're skipping class, and he's about to dive into off the tree limb into a lake, and this guy bounces the limb intentionally. The guy on the end falls, breaks his body, and ends up having to leave school because now he's an invalid. Eventually, this fellow, his guilt is eating him alive, and he uh, tells the fellow what he had done. And of course, he can't believe it. Why would you do such a thing? But really, at root was envy. He just envied that guy's acceptance and his seemingly effortless ability to do anything and have it work out wonderfully. That's what envy does. It eats away at us. It causes us to do things like that that are just so mean. Love does not parade itself. Love is not a show-off. It does not attempt to inspire envy in others. A few weeks ago, uh, Hannah and I were watching a movie, a Jackie Chan movie, and then the credits rolled. This was a fairly recent action movie. And in the credits, it's like Jackie Chan may be thinking that this was his last action movie because he's like 53 now, but he did all of his stunts again. And as they're chronicling the credits, they're showing his stunts from lots of different movies all the years. And it's said that he holds the world record for most stunts uh, performed. And at one point, they're interviewing him, and he says, I am so proud of myself. And it, you just think, ew, that really doesn't come across very well at all. He's just such a braggart when he's talking about how many stunts he's done and how proud he is of his accomplishments. And that is parading itself. That is what love does not do, never does. Love is not puffed up. Love is not proud. It does not attempt to make anybody else feel smaller so that you can feel larger, feel bigger, feel more important. Love does not behave rudely. Love wants other people to feel comfortable and safe in your presence. There is a movie that our family likes. I don't wholly recommend it because it has some bad parts, but it's called Blast from the Past, starring Brendan Fraser. And at one scene... Uh, the two other main characters are discussing his behavior because he has impeccable manners, they say. And uh, the one said to the other, I thought that was just his way of acting all high and mighty. But as it turns out, impeccable manners are meant to make other people feel comfortable in your presence. You don't want to offend them. And to, so to be a lady or a gentleman and practicing gentlemanly manners is to want other people to be as comfortable as possible. And that's what love does. Love wants to make other people feel comfortable, not to uh, make them feel uncomfortable purposefully. Love does not seek its own. And here you can add whatever phrase on the end of that you'd like to. Love does not seek its own way. Love does not seek its own happiness. It's just selfless. This one phrase, if every husband and wife, exercise these words, love does not seek its own. I don't believe any marriage would ever end in divorce. Marriages end because of selfishness. Love is not selfish. It is far more interested in the happiness of others, and in marriage, obviously, the happiness of the partner. It is not a sacrifice to have others get the attention. You want them to get the attention. You want them to be elevated. It's just the opposite of what most people think about. 
Love means selflessness. It means wanting to see those people be happy, even if it, it comes at your own expense. Love is not provoked. Love cannot be manipulated into losing its composure or in causing distrust of others. Love thinks no evil. When something bad happens, it doesn't immediately turn to plotting vengeance or plotting retribution. This is probably one of my most besetting sins. It's just the instant something bad happens, I just start thinking how I can get even or how can I can make that person pay. It's such a non-Christian way to think. And I hate myself for it. And I try to get past it. But it's almost like reveling like a pig in mud. It's hard to get out of that mode of thinking because you just think they deserve it, God. They deserve it. But God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And I just think sometimes, yeah, but this is too little for you to really worry about, isn't it? Let me take care of this one for you. That's, that's how I want to deal with God in these little matters. I just think that he's too important, too busy. But so see, that is not love. Anytime my knee-jerk reaction is to think evil of people, that is not love. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Iniquity is sin. Iniquity is evil. And hatred and evil are fed by sin. And so we think sometimes that a little bit might be good. A little bit might be that that uh, piece of the poison that prevents you from getting more poisoned, but it never does. It always leads to more and more and more. And so now that covers all the love isn'ts, and now let's cover the remaining love is's. At verse 6, love rejoices in the truth. If you are like me, and I'm sure many of you are, uh, you love reading an article where some injustice is corrected. Or somebody like this florist, for instance, if that woman were to win her case and have that silly judge's ruling overturned that's trying to force her to behave in a way that's inconsistent with her ethical standards of the Bible, that is just such a wonderful feeling. And God fuels us with that feeling. Sometimes we have to swallow loss after loss after loss, but we know that in God's world, in God's time, He and righteousness will prevail. And so that love rejoices in, as we ought to. Love bears all things. And this means that love is courageous. Love faces the uh, reality with fortitude. Love believes all things. This is perhaps confusing to you. Uh, this can be, I think, easily misunderstood. When it says that love believes all things, it's not that it is gullible. It's not that it must believe this because someone said it. No, no, no. It's, it's well-informed. It's wise. It's not muddle-headed. But it's that when you don't know for sure, when you have doubts, this always is the, the uh, standard that love raises. Don't be, don't be believing evil of people until you see the evidence. And it would go farther. Stand up for such people before you see the evidence. Help get to the truth in these situations. Don't become one of these people that just participates in this just because you think you know, just because you think their character reflects that type of behavior. No, love doesn't do, their, do that. Love doesn't go there. Love believes the best of people, looks past faults and flaws, and sees good in people. That's one of the things that's probably been most difficult for me to 
try to build in other people at my work in recent years is having them not be so critical of others, having them not think that just because they failed at this or that, they're good for nothing. People are prone to do that. And you, if you're on a huge team, you're going to have that a lot, just as we're a huge team. And so the potential exists for us to write one another off. They did this to me, or they did that to me. Yes, it was wrong, but now they're written off. They're out of my book of, I need to love them. I don't have to love them now. They did this to me, therefore that's not right. But see, that is taking worldly steps in a way that you ought not do. None of us should do that. Love hopes all things. Now, biblical hope is different than our hope. Our hope nowadays in our culture is kind of a forlorn hope. It's, it's a hope that is really not based on facts or evidence or the promises of the future. Biblical hope is based on God and his promises. And so that means that we express faith in God. And the last one, love endures all things. And so this is a combination of suffering long and bearing all things. And so love endures for the sake of all that is true, for all that is right and worthy, it endures. And love endures because it is not right to give in to evil. So love endures. We should endure in bearing all things, enduring all things, suffering long and bearing them. So now we've looked at love in three ways in these first seven verses. What is it greater than? What is it and what is it not? And then we come to the first three uh, words of verse 8. Love never fails. This is the title of the message. When you get to verse 8, the rest of the chapter really changes, I think, in character. Because the rest of the chapter supports those three words. Love never fails. Because it goes on to describe why and how other things specifically have failed. I'm not going to go into a, any detail on those. What I want to share with you is this. What does it mean when it says love never fails? What does that word fail mean? What's the definition for it in context? It could mean three things, and let me share them with you. First, it could speak of failing as uh, active. In other words, love is active and will not fail to achieve what it is that it's doing. Here, let me give you an illustration, another one from baseball. Everybody must think I love baseball. I haven't watched it in years, but I gave one a few weeks ago. But this is another one. In baseball, there's the concept of a closer. This is a person, a pitcher that comes out typically in the last inning to get three batters out. Sometimes they'll bring them in in the eighth inning if there's only like uh, one out or two outs. Sometimes they'll bring them in at the end. But the purpose of the closer is the team relies upon that person to come out there and be all energy for that brief time that they have to be on the mound. And they work vigorously to, to get that uh, post to be a closer is to really have the respect of the team. You've got the whole team, that whole game, riding on your shoulders every time they call you out. I used to watch the A's back when Dennis Eckersley was their closer, and that guy was phenomenal. And yet I watched one game where he just came out and he didn't have his stuff. And even though they were leading, boom, 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 they lose the game. And everybody's just shocked. It's like he hadn't lost a game in months. And he just comes out there and blows it. But see, that could be what is in... At, at point here, love never fails. In other words, it never fails. It never does that. It's an active thing that always wins, always accomplishes its goals. The second is that it could be an, a passive thing, not an active thing. And this would be uh, similar to a building 
that survives a storm. You can sometimes look out through an area that's been devastated by a storm and see these little buildings standing, just phenomenal. What caused that building to stand? It did not fail. In other words, it withstood the storm that crushed all these others. That could be the definition of fail here. So in other words, love never fails could be that it always wins, it always succeeds in its active work. Love never fails, meaning that it withstands all that come against it. Two definitions. I'm going to give a third one. And this means that it's everlasting. Love never fails, meaning that it never runs out, like the widow's jar of oil. It did not fail until she ran out of the containers that she'd brought. Did not fail, did not fail, did not fail, did not give out. It just went on and on and on and on. So see, time is like that, right, in this world. It seems that way to us. And it will persist. It goes on forever. That's the concept of forever. We know it in time. We know God is timeless, but we are not. We exist in time. We've been created to exist in time. So see, this is that love is everlasting. Love will never fail in the sense that it will never end. And that is obviously the meaning that Paul uses because the rest of the chapter goes on to speak about other things failing and each of the definitions means that it ended. Prophecies fail. It doesn't mean that they did not come true. It means that you do no longer need them. Prophecy ends when you no longer need it. Faith ends when you no longer need it. I preached a sermon a few years ago called The End of Faith that John was kidding me about, said it disturbed faith greatly. The end of faith. So see, in heaven, we don't need faith because we see God face to face. It is not like in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things unseen. No, faith is then right there. I see God. I, I, need, I, I need to not act on this absence of anything. So active, passive, and eternal. Those are the three aspects. I believe they're all true here. I believe Paul is emphasizing the eternal aspect but yet the rest of the Bible often emphasizes all the other aspects of love too, that it gets its goal. It's like the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, right? It gets its man. God gets us. He saves us. He targets us and he acquires us. We are his. We are his trophies. That is where love is active. And love is passive in that it endures. That's what Romans 8 is all about. Neither height nor depths nor angels or principalities, none of that will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So it is a passive but powerful protective force in our lives. And it is forever. It persists now and it persists on into eternity. Now this is God's perfect definition for love, but do we love like that? This is God's love that's being defined. Yet, we are commanded to live like that, to love like that. I want to read several aspects of love from 1 John 4, which is really the big chapter on love. Uh, the, the whole letter of 1 John is filled with love. But I want to read to you the verses 1 John 4, 7 to 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
In this the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So I want to point out some things here. First, in the first verse, love is God. Love is of God, and love is God. God is love. So, so love is of God. That means that true love is of God. It is not for us to define. Here on this earth, we like trying to redefine truths that God has defined forevermore. You cannot change the definitions of things that God has defined. And yet we find ourselves in a culture always trying to do that. The second premise, everyone who loves is born of God. Everyone who loves is born of God. So what does that tell you about our culture? We live in the midst of a culture in which many don't love God. And they're not born of God. And yet they proclaim that they love as God loves, and they can't. It's not possible. It's only possible for us as his children to love in the sense that God defines love. So everything else that you see in our culture is a facsimile of love. It's not real. It's not love as God defines it. God loved us and sent his son. Sacrifice. It is a hallmark of love. Selflessness. It's that phrase that I highlight, highlighted concerning marriage back there. Greater love has no man than that he lays down his life for a friend. See, sacrifice is the ultimate in terms of exhibiting love for one another. And then he ends with, we also ought to love one another. So see, John commands us to love one another as God loves us and as God defines love. But yet, we accomplish this only through Christ. We can't love one another perfectly in and of ourselves. We're still tainted. But through Christ, we can. I want to read to you another portion from 1 John 2. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is, I believe, what is the basis for the fact that no one on this earth who doesn't know and love God cannot love. Because what do they love instead? The world. And so see, they think they're loving you, but they're loving the world. It's different. When we love one another, we are loving through God. We're loving God by loving one another. And we're not loving the world in one another. We're loving God in one another because that's pure. That's holy. That's true. Jesus in John 12, 25 said this, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We, I love life. Life is such a precious gift from God. Jesus isn't telling me to hate God's gift to me. But comparatively, he's telling me to place God and our love for him 
above the love of the gift that God has given. That's all he means by hate there. It is meant for shock value. You don't have to hate life, but you have to love God more. This is why it is impossible for unbelievers to truly love, because they don't love God. They love this world, and this world is passing away. So I have some questions for you. Is your love supernatural? Is your love God's love, or is it not? Your character reflects this. Your character reflects whether your love is of God or whether it is of this world. So does your character reflect self-sacrifice or selfishness? Does your character reflect humility or pride? Does your character reflect patience or anger? Does your character reflect kindness or meanness? Does it reflect peacefulness or anger? And does it reflect politeness or rudeness? Let us love as God loves, purely, simply, without hypocrisy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and all who oppose it will be proven wrong. We thank you, Lord, and uh, praise you that you are so powerful and yet you are so patient and kind with us, uh, stooping down, as was prayed during the prayer of adoration, to reach into our world and interact with us uh, through this selfless act of love. And yet it cost you so much in order to maintain that relationship that we had squandered through Adam. And so we thank you, Father. We thank you for life. We thank you for your presence in it. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to love uh, you and one another, and that we would do so as wanting to live selflessly and sacrificially for others. Please, Lord, uh, show us opportunities to do just this. Show us where we fall short of Christ's model of love and guide us, Lord, into living more and more each day for you. We ask you to be with us now in Christ's name. Amen.